this has been a hard one to prepare for because as you see your, your handout here, I think I've been dealing with the malignant foe all week. Um, and our church and the church body with uh, people being sick and we just can't get everybody uh, well at the same time. And just all of the little things that are happening. But I'm hoping that this will give you a little different perspective. And today as we, we were worshiping the Lord, uh, part of this I may give you a new perspective on your worship and your place of worship and why you are such a target of the enemy. So um, the, the first uh, 25 chapters that we've gone through, we've talked about the judgment uh, that, uh, that was being poured out on Jerusalem and on Judah. And now we're going to see the judgment that is poured out on all those nations that mistreated Judah, that uh, mocked when God was dealing with them. And we're going to talk a little bit about the malignant foe. So we're, the first, uh, first thing we're going to deal with is the lamentation against the Prince of Tyre. And uh, when we talked about lamentation, we're talking about somewhere where, where you, you picture a casket there because the lamentation, there's no more, that, that's, a, that's a funeral dirge. So the Prince of Tyre, Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10, it talks about this ruler, the Nagid, being, means the man at the top. And Ezekiel had prophesied against the whole city, and he was now singling out the city's leaders for a special word from God. And this ruler of Tyre was Ethbaal III, who ruled from 591 to 590 B.C., to 573, 572 B.C. And two different persons are addressed in this chapter. So we're going to talk about the, the prince, then we're going to talk about the power behind the throne. So the first ten verses are not so much a personal criticism of the ruler as a verbal onslaught on the state. While one particular king is in view, Ethbel, and by the way, he is... Um, the father of Jezebel. We should view him as the representative head of his city-state. Similarly, our president represents the policies of our country. We often speak of him when we're referring to the country as a whole. He is uniquely responsible. Your, your ruler is uniquely responsible, but he's a representative figure. So the Prince of Tyre had become very proud because of the prosperity of his seafaring kingdom. And remember we talked about the, the merchant ships that went everywhere and the power that was in Tyre. He had even thought he was in God's place of control over his own and Tyre's affairs. And when we look at these old uh, rulers, uh, pagan rulers, they thought they were gods. So we go to verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man, 
and not a god, though you set your heart as the heart of a god. This was an arrogant and a conceited boast. Allowing your heart to be lifted up in pride, claiming authority and demanding tribute which belongs to God. This was the sin of the prince of Tyre, Ethbaal III, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of, of Rome, and of other rulers. Because thy heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a god, this is exactly what the Antichrist is going to say. The Apostle Paul says this of him in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Verse 3. Behold, and I want you to listen when we read this, and, when you're, and I'm reading out of a New King James version of the Bible, but listen to the arrogance in this, and count the use yours yourself. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. The irony was that Ethbaal the third felt his wisdom exceeded that of even Daniel, who served the country, Babylon, while he was a captive, but that Babylon would ultimately defeat Tyre. On the other hand, Daniel, who attributed all his wisdom to God, was much wiser than Ethbaal, who claimed to be a god. Verse 6, Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a god, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god? But you shall be a man and not a god in the hand of him who slays you. Here we have the verdict awaiting Ethbel, the ruler of Tyre, and his wicked city. He would die a shameful and disgraceful death, the death of the uncircumcised. God here mocked his claim of being a god, pointing out that he certainly would not claim any such thing in the hands of those who would slay him. The strangers referred to were the host of the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. Ethbaal III, king of Tyre, was removed from his throne by Nebuchadnezzar in 573-572 BC. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord. The king would die a shameful death. 
the Phoenicians practiced circumcision. So to die, the death of the uncircumcised meant to die like a barbarian. The Babylonians did not. They did not. They were the uncircumcised. He was to die at the hands of the uncircumcised. And now we're going to look at the power behind the throne. The king of Tyre. King is Melech in the Hebrew. And Ezekiel used the word king very sparingly. Remember, he wouldn't call uh, even those that had stepped the throne. He did not use that. He used it very sparingly. Apart from King Jehoiachin, which is in Ezekiel 1-2, he did not use the title king of any of Israel's monarchs. So verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. There is not a line of this that can be applied to any other being who ever lived except Satan. The very sin which resulted in casting of Satan out of heaven and down to the earth was that of pride. And therefore, the pride of the Tyrian kings prompted Ezekiel to call up from the word of God the example of what happened to Satan. And when I use the word dirge, because here it is the lamentation again, because his doom is already fixed. It cannot be changed. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. After this clause, the rest of the description must be applied to Satan before his appearance in Eden. It was that garden where Adam and Eve had been placed by the Lord and into which Satan appeared as an intruder with the intention of seducing Eve and causing the fall of the human race. He reappeared to Eve, not with a covering of precious stones, but as a talking serpent, standing, standing some way or whatever, but he was a talking serpent. That was how he appeared to her. How was he before he was cast down to earth? And this is what I, I really want I want you to really think about this. Before he was cast down to earth, he was magnificent. Every precious stone was his covering. There were nine stones that were just listed, but there were 12 in the priest's breastplate. And of the rows of three in each, the third row is omitted in the Masoretic text, but it is supplied in the 70. So he very well could have had the actual stones. He could have been cut the covering that was exactly like the breastplate. Thy tabrets and thy pipes 
was prepared in thee in the day that thou was, was created. Tambourines and pipes, there were literally holes in a musical pipes or flute. He was like a musical instrument. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. He was created as a cherub or a super angel. The mountain of God here is equivalent of the majesty on high. And I want you to think about that for a minute because he was the covering cherub. He was the worship leader. Now, we have talked about cherubs. Cherubs had four faces. I don't know if he did. He can appear in a lot of different ways. But he was the worship leader. And which way does the worship leader face? If I am your worship leader, and God is behind me, and I am leading you to worship him, the worship is coming toward the one who is leading the worship. And he took that for his own worship. He was taking that glory and that praise and that worship that was to go to the Father, and he was taking it on himself. And one-third of those angels that worshiped looked at him when they were worshiping. They thought he's magnificent, this creature, this cherub this heavenly worship leader. And the verse says, the next verse, 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now God takes care of this. Thou was created. Christ was the one who created him. Mormons think Lucifer and Jesus are brothers. False. Christ created him. God used the Logos to create all things, including Satan. So Satan, even with all his power, is still only a created being. And I want you to think about this. When he was cast out of heaven, who became that worship. Who took his place? And I submit to you that it is the church. That's why we are hated. Because we don't look out at all the heavenly creatures and offer worship. We turn and our faces are toward God. And we give him the praise. And Satan knows that place. He knows that favor. He had that position. And he has been moved from that position. And you are a target. And when you praise, and when you worship the Lord, how full of hate he must be. 
because he was a beautiful, awesome creature in heaven. He made sounds probably that were out of this world. And yet, when we lift our voices in praise, it is just the same to the Father's ears. We have replaced him. And he knows his end. He knows, he knows his end. And he will do anything he can to distract and distort the purposes of God in our life. Because he hates us with a hate that we cannot even imagine. What he would do if he was not bound. When we have asked God for protection and the mighty angels that he has set around the body of Christ and about, around each of us individually... Because Satan wants to steal that praise. And he works on worship leaders. Because if he can get a worship leader to be lifted up in pride or in some way veer off, he is delighted. When he can get us to just sing and not realize that, we, that our voices are coming before the throne of God, and it doesn't matter if you have the scratchiest old voice or if you can't hit a note in a bucket. You cannot. To him, it is absolutely beautiful. It is as beautiful as the music of the tambourines and the harps and all of that which Satan would do before the throne of God. And so when we worship tonight, and I thought, Lord, if we could just realize how aggravated we can make the enemy by lifting our voice and taking his place before the throne of God because he'll never stand there again. But we're going to, in our glorified bodies, we're going to stand and we're going to be that mighty sound of praise that goes forth before the throne of God throughout eternity. So, now we have seen a picture of the enemy. And I'm going to <clears throat> skip over and then I'm coming back to this. Isaiah 14 gives us a picture. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 16. And he cries out, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Because we're talking about a king here. We're talking about the power behind the throne. Now let's go back to verse 16. And we're talking again about the, this whole spirit behind power. 
It says, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. The origin and career of Satan, if we wanted to look into that, can be addressed direct, indirectly in Genesis 3, 14, 15. That's when he appeared as a snake, and we went on to a couple of these things. But I want this you to understand this. He is the prince power of this air. My mother did not believe that. She, she just felt like that we had... We have dominion. She said that. And so I kind of grew up thinking that. But Jesus understood. Because at the temptation in Luke 4, 5, 8, it says, And the devil, taking him up into the high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee. And the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me. He asked Jesus, the creator, his own creator, to bow down and put his face to the ground and worship him the created one. And he says, all shall be thine. He promises all this to, to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So the day the devil is still the prince power of the air. He is the one who is in back of the kingdoms of our world, whether we recognize it or not. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now he's talking about the one where Satan is behind. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by in the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So we think about this. We think we've got an election coming up. And we think about, think about it. Think about everything that we think that we, we are manipulating. You know, we're, we're just, you know, we're just going to do this and we're going to do that and we make all these plans. But I tell you, there is spiritual warfare going on around us, around our government, around our nation. And we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and be focused and know that no matter what is, what is happening or what happens, we may get what we deserve, God forbid. 
God help us. Because we think we don't want this person or we don't want that person, but God's going to put in the person that we deserve. We'll deserve it. And so all we can do is pray and intercede and ask God to have mercy. We live in a prideful nation. And it's going through this, and I tell Don, I just get, I just almost get ill when I see the pride that is demonstrated in people, in candidates that are running for the highest office of our country. And I think, God, this sounds just like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I can do it. And most of them have said that. So now we go to the proclamation against Sidon. And we know that Sidon, we dealt with Tyre last week, but Sidon was about 25 miles north of Tyre. The city was founded by Canaan's firstborn son. And the tribe of Asher did not drive out the Sidonians and judges. And Sidon later became subject to its daughter city, Tyre. It was destroyed by Esarhaddon in 677 B.C., and it, with Tyre, became subject to Pharaoh Hophra in 588 B.C. About the time of Solomon, it was the headquarters of Baal worship, Ashtoreth, Tammuz worship. It submitted to Cambyses in 526 B.C., uh, the cedar for the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple came from there, and it was destroyed by the Persians in 345 B.C., and it surrendered to Alexander the Great in uh, 333 B.C., and it's passed to the Romans in 64 B.C. Jesus Christ made an interesting contrast about Sidon and Tyre, saying that if the works Israel saw would have been seen by Tyre and Sidon, they would have turned around. And so we, we can, when you are very familiar with all the places where Jesus traveled and preached and everything, he'd been all of these places, and uh, the Apostle Paul, all of them. So it's mentioned more probably in the New Testament. Verse 20, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. There were many things in Sidon that called for the judgment of God against them, not at least which was Jezebel's outrageous establishment of the entire apparatus of Baal worship in the very heart of Israel itself. Sidon was judged, but not destroyed. That city exists today. It is the place where oil is brought in from the, north, from the Near East. Verse 23, For I will send pestilence upon her, and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side. They shall know that I am the Lord. And there shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them. 
then they shall know that I am the Lord God. And in my heart, I hear the Lord saying to our nation, know that I am the Lord. I don't want us to get to that place where we are so pompous and so above repentance and we are so deluded and we have so watered down the word that judgment might come upon this nation and then they will know that I am the Lord God. Like so many of these passages, this one closes now with a few verses that shifts the focus back to Israel and their restoration in the land. And this is yet future. Verse 25, thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. And that included Tyre and Sidon, by the way. They go clear up. If you saw, I, I wanted to, I just didn't, couldn't find the right kind of things to give you this time. But uh, if you could see the land mass that was actually given uh, to Abraham, to Jacob, you could see it. And Israel has, has shrunk down. They're a little tiny portion of what God gave them and what they will have. Since then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They're going to have it all. And they will dwell safely there. They will build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. The Israelites are going to live securely building houses, planting vineyards, when the Lord punished all the nations that had scorned his people. This would teach them that he is God. This is a rare prediction of Israel's restoration in the oracles against foreign nations, though in another sense, all these prophecies of judgment on Israel's enemies are promises of Israel's exaltation. For Israel to rise, these other nations must fall. After the Babylonian captivity, some Israelites returned to live in the promised land, but they did not live there in safety. In fact, the Jews have never lived safely in their own land. Fulfillment awaits the return of Jesus Christ and his millennial kingdom. And some of these nations that are being judged are going to be part of that. Some are not. Ezekiel 29, the proclamation against Egypt. And I had the neatest uh, handout for you <laughs> uh, and left it. In the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. And this is another dated prophecy. And this, this prophecy was given to Ezekiel seven months before the fall of Jerusalem. And he said, son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lives in the midst of his rivers, 
who has said, my river is my own, I have made it for myself. And that monster is, could be, and it's, it's uh, depicted as a sea monster or a crocodile. And so I had this huge big crocodile coming up out of the water with these words on it. Uh, because he was so pompous that he believed that he created the Nile. And so he said, my river is my own. I have made it for myself. Like the king of Tyre and his people, Pharaoh and Egypt had also been guilty of pride. He had become like a great river monster, probably a crocodile of which there were many in the Nile because he had taken credit for the Nile River, the lifeblood of the nation. Pharaoh calls himself the creator of the Nile because he regards himself as the creator of the greatness of Egypt. When Pharaoh's daughter reached down and she brought that little basket and, and baby Moses lifted him up and named him Moses, uh, he was a gift from the gods. She didn't realize <laughs> uh, because Pharaoh had created the Nile, so he thinks. But God was in, orchestrated all of that. He goes on, but I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. The Lord promises to remove Pharaoh and his people from their land as a fisherman pulls a crocodile out of the water with hooks. He would remove the river dragon along with a lesser fish that would cling to it. These fish may refer to the neighbor nations and allies of Egypt that relied on her. Egypt was powerful. A powerful, you could look at the, just, they're, they're nothing now compared to what they were. Uh, we see the Sphinx, we see, uh, uh, if you go to a museum where they show you just a little bit of the gold sarcophagus and the different things, but when they, when they were, it wasn't just one sarcophagus in gold. There would be gold beds, gold chairs. There was so much gold. Many, many, many more times gold than we have, would have in Fort Knox, but I doubt there was any in Fort Knox right now. <laughs> uh, that would be a surprise and a shocker. Um, <clears throat> so... They were very, very rich, and a lot of people depended on them. And normally, people caught crocodiles by placing hooks in their jaws and then dragging them onto the land where they were killed. Verse 5, I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts and to the birds of the heavens. The Lord would carry the dragon or the crocodile into a wilderness along with its dependent fish where they would not return to water. There the beasts and the birds would devour Egypt. Improper burial 
was considered a fearful fate in the ancient world, especially to the Egyptians in view of their meticulous care of the dead. They even built houses for the dead. They, they, I mean, that, that was the whole thing because they were preparing for the afterlife. So all their life they prepared to die. And it wasn't going to be that way for him. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took a hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. So Israel from time to time, and you know, the Lord had told them, don't, don't look back, don't depend on them. And you know, time and time again, they would lean on Egypt for help. And, that the, and they were not reliable. So Egypt had been unfaithful to follow through on its promises to help the Israelites. They had proved to be as weak a support as one of the reeds that grew along the banks of the Nile. Verse 8, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord because he said, the river is mine, and I have made it. Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Ethiopia. Neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and among the cities that are laid waste. Her city shall be desolate 40 years, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the country. Egypt would not be inhabited for 40 years, and other desolated lands would surround her. Her cities would lie waste. And her people would disperse among other nations and live in other countries. Egypt's fate was like a repetition of Israel's in the wilderness. Verse 13, yet says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pethros, to the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. And when you look at Egypt today, that is exactly what you see. There is so much poverty. There is a, they are a small, they're not an influential nation. And there's, they are just in the midst of barrenness. Seventeen years later, after this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar came and he took the ca Egyptians into captivity. They were in captivity for 40 years, not 70 like Israel. Egypt never recovered its former power after the Chaldean period. It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms, that's verse 15. It shall never again it's, it exalt itself above the nations. So you never have to worry about Egypt doing anything because God says, no, it will not happen. For I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore. 
No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turn to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Egypt would be the lowest of the kingdoms and would never again be a superpower in the world. The Egyptians would not even rule over any other nation. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Remember, he fought 13 years, and he never, ever, he, he destroyed the mainland, but he didn't do the island city. It took uh, Alexander the Great to do that. But he says, every head was made bald, and every shoulder rubbed raw, yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for his labor, which they expended on it. So these soldiers that labored for 13 years trying to take down Tyre came away with nothing. No, there was no, no, nothing there for them. So in the arduous siege that was laid, by, uh, laid to Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare by the chafing by carrying loads. So they worked hard. Verse 19, therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth. He will carry off her spoil and remove her pillage, and that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me, says the Lord God. So Egypt was rich at that time. And the Babylonians went in there and they took everything. They took all the, the gold, every, anything that they could find, they took. And that was their wages for going against Tyre. God announced that he would give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar as payment for executing his judgment against Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar would carry off the wealth of Egypt as spoil and plunder uh, he had labored for the Lord by defeating Tyre. Babylon gained almost no spoils in the long siege. The absolutely consistent justice of God shines through in this prediction. He would even pay back an evil pagan king for serving him. His unconscious as Nebuchadnezzar was of his role, he thought this was all his idea. How much more can we count on God being fair with his own? God sees it all, and he will take care of his own. We do not labor in vain. Verse 21, it says, In that day I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, Ezekiel's been... A mute. It says, the Lord also promised to open Ezekiel's mouth when in the midst of the exiles. 
the verification of the prophet's words to his fellow exiles that the divine judgment would be followed by new hope indicates that the Davidic dynasty is to be restored. Ezekiel 30, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy, thus says the Lord God, Woe, woe to the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of cloud, clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The day of the Lord, the day of wrath, this has just changed the breadth of the horizon before us. This is the day of judgment on sin and the final doom of the heathen world of which Egypt is representative. Egypt is the type of the world. This section is the only one not dated but may be chronologically related in Ezekiel 29, 1 through 16. It consists of four oracles, each beginning with, Thus saith the Lord. Um, This is a time of wailing and mourning, a lamentation for the nations. The judgment on Egypt is the beginning of a worldwide judgment on all the heathen enemies of God. Verse 4, The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt and they take away her wealth and her foundations are broken down. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chub or Chub, I'm not sure how they pronounce that, and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. The mingled people and the men of the land that is in league, the allies of Egypt were to be overthrown. Literally, and the sons of the land of the covenant with them, that is the Jews who migrated to Egypt and carried Jeremiah with them. The mingled people could mean the mercenary troops of Egypt from various lands, mostly from the interior of Africa, or a reference, and we talked about this before, because this could this would be um, could last day, the, uh, the miry clay. Remember we talk about the Nephilim and the, the mixing of the seed, um, of men and whatever the seed is not of men, whether it be Nephilim, return of fallen angels, that kind of thing. And Daniel 2.43, if you want to look at that again, it says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, Those who uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down. From Migdal to Syene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. The Lord announced again that the nations that supported Egypt would fall with her. Egypt would suffer humiliation from north to south as the enemy slew many Egyptians. Verse 7, they shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries. And her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have set a fire in Egypt and all her helpers are destroyed. On that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great anguish shall come upon them, as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. The Lord 
acts against Egypt were meant to warn the unsuspecting Ethiopians and the world. Thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with slain, with the slain. So uh, Egypt was carried off by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and here he's referred here by name. That's the one who's going to take Egypt. And in fact, he is the head of gold in Daniel's prophecy, if we tie him in there, uh, one of the four great world kingdoms. Verse 12, I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it. By the hand of aliens, I, the Lord, have spoken. And this was, this, I just read this, that Nebuchadnezzar had literally gone in and because it was a fertile place, you know, the Nile River and the, 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 there was a lot of greenery and trees and that kind of thing, they literally, uh, I, there's a word for it, but they, they took every bit of the, the foliage, they took down the trees. They, they, it was, Egypt was just desolate. Drying up, drying up of the Nile would be a calamity to Egypt. Egypt fell later on to Alexander the Great, and when he died, his generals took over the nations he had conquered. Cleopatra, who was not an Egyptian but a Greek, ruled over Egypt. Okay, their, their dependence upon the Nile, these people from Egypt, their whole lives hung on the Nile, and its ability to produce sustenance by overflowing and fertilizing the fields. So God saying he would make the rivers dry would be a very scary threat to them. This threat of letting the rivers dry has happened literally in our times. The famous Aswan Dam and the disasters it has brought ecologically. Um, let me flip back over here just to see what I wanted to say and what I didn't hear. Um, now, it says a nation of 40 million people now have a problem feeding itself. Egypt is in really bad shape. They are really uh, very desperate. It also turns out that there are some snails that attack the flax, which makes linen, and whose needs, reeds and various things upon which the Egypts have, Egypt has been dependent for millennia. The snails were previously washed away by the annual flooding of the Nile. Um, with the Aswan Dam control, the snails have multiplied and killed off all those crops upon which Egypt used to gain enormous economic benefit. Verse 13, he says, Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph. There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. There's never any real big leader from Egypt, if you'll notice. I mean, they just, they're just not very, they're not a major pl player. Eight principal cities, three in the lower and five in the upper Egypt, are singled out for destruction. Um, Nof, which was the Greek for Memphis, is 10 miles south of Cairo. Um, there was 1,200 gods in Egypt at one time, so they were very idolatrous. Um, I read that. There's not going to be any more kings. At verse 14, I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments in No. Specifically, God would desolate 
Upper Egypt, uh, between, that was between modern Cairo and Aswan. He would burn up Zon, which is Tanis, a chief city in the northeastern delta, and he would judge No, which is Thebes, modern Karnak, and Luxor. Egypt's southern capital, that was Luxor, Egypt's southern capital. All the towns mentioned in these verses were important religious centers as well as large cities. Verse 15, he says, I will pour my fury on sin, the strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitude of no and set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. No shall be split open and Nof shall be in distress daily. Um, Verse 17, the young men of Avon and Pi-Beseth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. At, and I did a, uh, <laughs> I'll have to get Leroy to pronounce this one for me. Tehaph, uh, it's T-E-H-A-P-H-N-E-H-E-S, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I looked it up, I put it in here phonetically, and they didn't print it out. Um, it shall be... <laughs> It shall be darkened when I break the yokes in Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughter shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And, you know, one thing I'll I'll point out right here is that you'll see that there are four chapters of this book of Ezekiel that are dedicated just to Egypt because... Egypt is a is where we're living. This is a this is a type of the world system. Okay, in verse twenty. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on it to bind it to make it strong enough to hold a sword. So God announced that he had broken Pharaoh's arm. Ironically, this strong-armed king had suffered a broken arm. It had not been set in a splint and supported, so he could not wield a sword effectively. This refers to Egypt's defeat at Carchemish in 605 B.C. when Egypt lost its share of control over the ancient Near East. Another possibility is that the defeat in view was Hophra's unsuccessful attack against the Babylonians near Judea a few months earlier. Verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arm of the king of Babylon, and put my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms, and he will groan before him with the groaning of a mortally wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arm of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. They shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And I have run out of time. Uh, Ezekiel 31 is another one where he's going to talk about Assyria, another mighty nation. But I think the point that, that the Lord is making here is 
you're never too big that he cannot deal with you. And I've mentioned again that cup. And you know, I know personally, and we've talked about the cup and that the things that we do, the sin that we've done, the, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the adultery, the whatever, the, whatever is, whatever way we're broken. We're all born broken into this world in some way or the other. But whatever we have done, there is the cup. And it fills up with the sin. But praise God, in the New Testament, Jesus took our cup. He drank that. We don't want to sin because he drank that. But nations also have a cup. And this is what, this is what God is saying. Pay attention. These nations that thought they could never be pulled down could go down in a moment. And when he turned, when he said, I am against you, we don't ever want to say that as a country, that I am against We don't want to hear that from him. And I know there have been times in my life when I have done something that, you know, because to sin you have to push past the Holy Spirit who is standing there to you and telling you, don't go there. Stop. Stop. Don't do that. And we push him. No, I'm going to do that. He will never let you do anything that will harm you or take you away from the Lord. You have to push past him. But when we continue to push past him, we might hear him say, I am against you. I'm against you because he is a loving father. And I know when my dad told me, Linda Kay, you do that again. And you're gonna, you're, I'm going to have to spank you. And there was no negotiating when he said, you did this, I'm against you. And you, you've got to pay the price. And I thank God for his great mercy. And I thank God that the Holy Spirit that, that loves us and is here to guide us, he is our guide. And anytime you're even thinking about doing something, when temptation comes, know that he is standing there and he will plead with you. And he will say, don't, don't. Don't, please don't. You know how hard that it is the way back. Because of his great love for us. And so as I, I know this is hard and we will get out of judgment. We're going to get out of that pretty soon. But I feel like that God is, is speaking to us as a nation and he's speaking to us as individuals. And as individuals and, and as members of this body uh, that we need to pay very close attention to the Lord. And, and just to remind you, if you don't think that what I'm telling you is the truth, have you ever started to say something about somebody and heard the voice of the Spirit say, don't say that. Don't be party to this. Be still. I'll take care of it. And so that's the great love that he has for us. And I want you to know, I love you, and I, I don't want to beat you up with this word, but this is the full counsel of God. He's not just the New Testament. 
This is, this is Old Testament's part of it. <laughs> so we got to learn. And the more you learn, the more you understand the sovereignty of God and the great price that Jesus paid for us, that we don't have to go through that stuff. He keeps our feet.